0: Would you please stand for the reading of the word? All right, our reading today comes from the um, book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, have, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The one, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he t- uh, and with, with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we'll jump into this wonderful passage here in just a second. One just kind of life in the church, kind of important acknowledgement, honoring, celebration. As you all know, or most of you know, if you're not new, you might know, but we work, we're kind of like Siamese twins, our church and our nonprofit, our city, we work hand in hand and being a faithful presence in the neighborhood here. And so it's such a central part of who we are is the partnership within that. And so our dear Beth... Gaelic was the founder of that in 2014, has been the executive director of that, working very, very hard, tirelessly, of course, family too, so we're celebrating the family in this, but this is, what that's nine nine years now, going hard on that. And one of the things that's been really wonderful over the last few years as our city's developed is even though Beth was the executive director, really building a shared leadership team of directors where everything was being held and built together and trying to have a real leadership development focus within that. So one of the great stories over these years, and if you've been around, you've heard many times from Sharnisha Collier. Sharnisha is one of the great leadership development stories. Sharnisha grew up in the neighborhood here. She started in the programs in Harambe when she was 16 years old. Took on increasing levels of leadership in these last couple of years. She ended up taking over all of Harambe. She's been running um, the whole staff. She's been running the um, all the programs of our city. And so it uh, felt like felt like the time came where it's, Time to do the baton handoff where Shara is going to fully move into the executive director position starting in the new year. And so yeah, that's worthy of celebrating and we'll do that. And we want to have a big time culture of honor and celebration when somebody works their butt off for the kingdom and um, runs the race well. Um, Beth has gone hard since 2014. And the great news is she's not leaving our city. She's definitely not leaving our church. She's going to stay on staff. She's going to be the lead for finance which in a nonprofit is, of course, really important, and particularly for us, because so much of the funding comes from grants and foundations, so Beth will continue to be the lead with that, so it's going to be wonderful to still have her in the organization. She and Charlie and the whole family still members here. The manor next door, many other things, community development-wise, so not going anywhere, um, but this is uh, significant and really symbolic importance, not just symbolic, it's real. It's, it's We've got this 25-year-old young woman from the neighborhood who is taking the full leadership of it, and it's a, I think it's a real success story of... the the shared partnership between River City and our city. She's feeling up for it and ready to tackle it. All the things we're trying to do, that lot next to all the things, are still all the things that are super important. Um, But uh, we're gonna spend ample time celebrating Beth in the New Year. We'll do a formal installation of Char in the New Year. So those are things coming. But in the here and now, I want to say thank you to Beth, honor the work that she has done. (laughs) Grateful for the many, many ways she has given of herself and her life for our city, for the church. And, um, yeah, the work will continue on. So very, very thankful for her and uh, excited for the next chapter. So, all right. Now, let us get into this wonderful passage. We are in the series called The Questions God Asks. So we are looking at um, some of these kind of key and town counters. We kept it just the Old Testament. We could do a whole series on this in the New Testament of Questions Jesus Asks. Uh, maybe we will do that someday. But for now, for this series, we've got three more of these left, including today been looking at some of these really seminal accounts between God and different people in the Old Testament and looking particularly at the question that God asks of that person and kind of thinking about what that question says about what God is like, what that question says about what life with God is like, what that question might mean for how we understand God's activity in our own lives. So now we're in Isaiah, who is uh, one of the major prophets, plays a very significant role as this prophetic voice in the Old Testament. Uh seem to have an unusual kind of sense and grasp of not only the nature and character of what God was like, but of the coming Messiah, of the coming Jesus that would be sent from God to come into the flesh. Uh, So some of the richest... Uh, prophetic images of the coming Messiah are in the back half of Isaiah. In fact, it's actually interesting, of course nobody would have known this at the time, but there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, which matches how many books there are in the Bible. So there's just something really unique about the way Isaiah was in tune with God and what God was doing in that time and where it was all pointing. So I Very rarely alliterate my points for a sermon, and if that happens, it's usually by accident. So there's an accidental alliteration in this one, but hopefully that'll make it a little bit more memorable. There's so much in here that I want to just kind of look at two things and spend a minute on each side of it. Uh, In this encounter that Isaiah has with God, there are two things that I think he sees are so true of God. They're true for Isaiah and God. They're true for us and God. I want to spend some time in each one of them. I'm going to have you say this with me, two S's. Isaiah first says that God saves. Say that, God saves. and God sends sounds real simple. It is super profound and life-changing to kind of wrestle with these. Isaiah sees that God saves and God sends. That's as far as I want to try to hope we can get with this, but I think there's a lot in that on both of these. So let's, let's, if you don't mind, go ahead and bring the text back up. We're going to kind of step into this. So of that outline, God saves and God sends, it's actually seven verses and one verse. The, the first seven verses describe in quite vivid detail this encounter that Isaiah has with God at church. He's in the temple. Uh, seems to be probably something more like a vision than something that actually happened, although who knows? But I think that's probably one of the reasons why I like church so much, even if, even if it's not anything that specifically happens from the music or the prayer and praise or the, the sermon. It's just there's something about being together that feels like it can open us up to the Lord God moving and us encountering God. And so um, Isaiah is telling us, in the year the king of Ziah died, we'll come back to that, that's actually an important detail, Isaiah sees God and then starts to use all this language to describe the majesty, the immensity, the uh, the wonder, the beauty. So he sees God high, exalted, he sees God seated on a throne, which was an important image, the idea of God as king, uh, sees the train of his robe, uh, it seems that... This is kind of similar imagery that Jesus uses when it talks about the woman with the issue of blood grabbing onto the train of his robe, the train of the robe filling the temple. In verse 2, we see that um, there are these different kinds of angelic beings, these different kind of cosmic beings. Seraphim is one of them. We could all have a whole interesting conversation just on angels in the Bible, which we actually have done from time to time, but won't do that today. But this is the first time we see seraphim. They seem to be these uh, yeah, six-winged angelic beings that have a particular purpose from God, and so we see seraphim in this vision who are being <clears throat> used by God to um, bring Isaiah deep into an encounter with the holiness of God, and we, we, we hear the seraphim singing to each other, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole, the whole earth is full of God's glory. So it goes on and on, you see smoke, you see fire, you see coals. Bottom line, Isaiah's having this image first of kind of what God is like, this grandeur and wonder and majesty of what God li- is like. And it's just one of the reasons I like doing this series, whatever we did, nine or 10 different portraits from the Old Testament, um, no, no, the specifics of each story are really gonna be the specifics how everybody's story works. Usually you'll find yourself more so in one than the other. Interesting for me, this is actually the story Um, that most resembles my own encounter with God. I can't remember if I've ever shared this before, uh, but uh, I had something that I've only had it once, only once, but I had something that very much felt like an Isaiah 6 moment in my own life. It was very formative for me. Um, I was 22 years old and was in kind of a place. I am a pastor's kid. A lot of you know that. And Got to see a little bit of the best, mostly the worst <laughs> of church growing up. Got to see three church splits, nice up close. Got to see scandals of every single kind, nice and up close. Got to see power abuse, nice and up and close. So I had a very low view of church, very low view of church. So when people talk about all this church hurt and toxic stuff, I'm not minimizing that, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that. Way before that was like popularized, that was like my own life experience. The annoying thing was, though, even though I could not stand church, I just could never shake God. <laughs> Like, I just could not in, I mean, like in haunting ways, like I wanted to be, and I kind of, but I wanted to be that younger prodigal in the, in the story of the prodigal son that just like leaves. Like I I was daring God. Um, um, And even when I would do that, I could just always feel God's presence nearby in a way that's not something your parents can put in you, right? not, in a way that's not something can, that people could convince you of. It's just simply because I was so aware of God's presence. So I kind of recognized it, but did nothing to honor it or submit to it or surrender to it. And so when I was 22, I actually was at church, um, mostly because church was the easiest place for me to pick up girls. I was not very good at picking up girls in clubs, but at church, it was... In my church environment, if you're a little bit spiritual leader, a little bit spiritual bad boy, that was like a kind of a killer combination. So uh, I was at church. We had a Sunday night, we had a Saturday night service, so I would actually go to church on Saturday night, seven o'clock service, and I'd go out afterwards. So it was like any other night. Um, I was there, um, did my thing. And so we were at the very, very end. I actually actually think this is why I like church. I don't remember anything about worship that night. I don't remember anything about what the sermon was at. I was literally standing in the back of the room getting ready to leave. It was the closing song of worship. And then for whatever reason, I have no idea why God initiates something like this. I guess it certainly wasn't anything I did. It wasn't that I had prostrated myself or postured myself in the right way. But I actually got sucked into something that felt really quite similar to this. I had, like, like I had, I mean, I was there. I was, it was, everybody's doing that. But, like, I, like, got almost like transported into a vision of God. And I wasn't thinking of Isaiah 6 in that moment. But later, I would come back to Isaiah 6 and say, that's a lot what it felt like. Because that is, I mean, I didn't see seraphim or anything. But I just had this sense, like, if I could, like, the bigness of God, um, the holiness of God. Growing up, I would have scared. I would have said I was scared of that word holy because um, that was always for me associated with the punitive side of God. So holiness was a word that's not a word I'm scared of anymore. To you know, holy just means set apart. And so when the when the seraphim are saying holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. I think what they're describing in the best ways. It's the otherness of God. Uh, uh, this sense that what who God is, what God is like. It's not just like every other little thing that I interact with here, right? There's something when we see God for who God is. And, and I thought Benjamin got to some of this with the Job sermon last week, right? When we get kind of a peek into the, ma- the magnitude, the scope, the wonder, of course, the love, the graciousness. And I got a vision of God. I mean, I grew up in church. I should have been able to say I knew God. But I had, an, I had a vision of God that day that was very different than anything I had encountered. And um, it, it was amazing. It's amazing how... You experience something spiritually, but then it affects you physically. I literally was quivering. I could not stop. In fact, there was a couple hours before I could stop from quivering. This sense of who God was did that to me. And so I canceled my plans, went back to my apartment. I didn't know what to do. I literally couldn't stop shaking. Um, so the vision like kind of followed me back home. It was really wild. Um, and when I got home, I, w- I didn't know what to do. So I kneeled at my bed because um, prostrate just felt like the only position to do. And I was just trying to listen. I think it's really important that Isaiah kind of hears the voice of God. I was trying to listen. So if I could put words to what I heard God say, I heard God say, you have been running from me while at the same time knowing that I'm there the whole time. You, you're living in this like crazy, uncomfortable in-between, right? Where you know I'm here and so you can't get free of that, but you're also not living in accordance with me. And then I felt God say this too. I felt God say, you continue to be too good to be bad and too bad to be good. I was like, Always at war with myself, and um, I just felt God say, like, tonight's the night. Like, I don't want you to live like that anymore, and I just knew this was not something to trifle with. And so, just had this, it's just amazing when you have a moment like that. I, I realized every year since I was, could remember, three, four, however old, is old enough to kind of be aware, I had prayed what in my tradition was called the sinner's prayer, which is where you kind of pray for God to forgive you of your sins, and I'm not in any way minimizing that, but I remember praying the sinner's prayer every year since I was like four, I was very scared of going to hell. But I realized at 22, I had never once prayed the prayer, God, my life is yours. I had never prayed that prayer. I was terrified of that prayer. Uh, But that was the night. That night um, is when I prayed the prayer. I'm not asking just to be saved of my sins anymore. I'm asking to be saved from my selfishness, my own ambition, my own agenda. I want to give my life over to you. And in my case, that actually was a very definitive and life-changing moment. Things were very different from that night on. Now in sharing that, the risk of sharing that, just in the risk of reading these, is that it can sound like that's how it has to work for all of us. Uh, And that's not what I'm saying. I don't think you have to have a vision one Sunday here at church as you're about to go head out to something else where you're trembling afterwards because you've seen the angels of the Lord singing, holy, holy, holy. I don't think it has to happen exactly like that but here just like in all these stories i think there are parts that are applicable to all of us and here's let's spend a moment then we'll go to the god sends let's let's park here for a minute look at the story for sure isaiah sees in a new way that god is in fact here's the here's the first thing i would say when you have when you're going to have a deep, like, saving kind of encounter with God. And I think these can be one-time things, but I think this is stuff that happens over and over and over again. So I'm not really talking about a single moment. Here, Let, let me just draw out a few things that feel important here. For, for one, when you have a true encounter with God, it actually, the deepest change in us is not instigated by looking at ourselves. It's instigated by looking at God. See, this is, this is kind of the interesting twist. Most of us don't come to God until we have something in our own lives that's driving us. Right, my need to be forgiving because I've done something really bad. My need for purpose, my need for comfort, my need for strength or empowerment. That's usually what drives us to God is our own need, right? Which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But that's not actually what changes us. Right. What changes us is when we get this vision of who God is. The wonder, the majesty, the expansiveness, the power, the goodness, the grace, the love of God. There, there, there's something about and enlarged and expanded. I like this word revelation, right? The last book of the Bible is called Revelation, but the word just simply means to have something revealed, right? A revelation means something was there before, you just didn't see it, right? A revelation of God is when you see some parts of who God is that you just did not see before, right? And so I think that's one of the things that we see in this is that uh, Isaiah gets this vision of who God is that changes everything for him. The second thing that I think is a consistent thing when we're really having these moments with God, these kind of encounters with God that really changes. Uh, I think we re- we're reading NIV, and I think here it says, "I'm ruined." Yeah, verse five. What to me, I'm ruined. I, I don't know. That's fine. I, I came to know the story in King James, and so in King James it says, "I'm undone." And for some reason, I just that one hits a little bit more for me. I'm undone. Uh, uh, I actually think this is a consistent sign. When you see God for who God is, this is a pretty consistent response to it. right? Like you, just like in the Bible, if, if somebody sees an angelic being, they don't go, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, that kind of matches what I expected it would look like. It's kind of similar to the Hallmark card, kind of not. right? That's not ever like you, you, you become overwhelmed right, by this sense of interaction with the divine. I think when you really see God for who God is, you'll come undone. Yeah. You'll come undone. Uh, it's not even something you have to work at. That's uh, it's why this experience I had I remember I kneeling felt so now now I I, I see the deep meaning of, but growing up it was such a like forced thing on me I never liked kneeling but when I actually had this encounter with God it's the only thing I knew to do was to kneel because you just you just become aware of the fact that I'm in the presence of something so much more powerful than me the stakes are so high right now uh, the need for me to see and respond is so high so. I think there's a sense of to see God clearly is to become undone. That's the second thing I would say from this. Uh, a third thing I would say from this, and, and let, let me, let's pause, let, let's look at this story for a moment, because I think this is, this is so, so important. Um, the third, so, let me set it. Isaiah experiences the tender mercies of God here. So, given these first two, Isaiah sees God a new way, God, Isaiah is undone. Uh, let's put it in question form. When we look at this text, what does God ask Isaiah to do? once Isaiah sees this vision of God, comes undone, what is, what's expected of Isaiah next? Is, is Isaiah, does Isaiah need to show some great act of courage in order to receive the blessing of God in that moment? Does Isaiah need to show that he's going to work off any debts he's accrued up to this moment to prove that he's worthy of God's grace in this moment? Does uh, Isaiah need to give a speech that shows he understands the stakes of the moment so that God's grace will come upon him. Does Isaiah even need to go on a search for God in any kind of a way? You can see where I'm going. The answer to all of these is no. Right? This third one, why I'm really stressing this, I just think it's so wonderful to remember that encounters with God is not something we have to even go after or prove ourselves for. God does all the work in this encounter. All of it. God initiates this. Um, this, this whole, even though there's this kind of specific wildness of the seraphim coming and the seraphim taking the coal from the altar and bringing that and touching it on Isaiah's lips, the idea here, in fact, this, this would be what I would say is the last thing. This is just some of the coolest parts of how God works with us. Everything that has to happen for us to be different... For us to be saved, if I can use that language, for us to be renewed, redeemed. God does, God takes care. It's not like a 50 50 deal. It's not like a 75 25 deal. God does all of it, right? Nothing is required of Isaiah other than to just be in a position where he can receive it, right? Like in the moment, I can't imagine that Isaiah even understood the significance of like the seraphim taking, using tongs, which is kind of interesting because obviously it was like so holy that it couldn't even touch it with its. I was going to say fingers. I'm not sure if seraphim may have fingers, whatever they use to hold the, hon- hold the tongs, but th- this picking up the coal. But as we see in the prophecies, as the book of Isaiah unfolds, Isaiah probably did start to get a sense of what that imagery was, right? Like for there to be an altar, you know what an altar was used for in religious purposes, right? Or something to be sacrificed. An altar was used for something to be sacrificed. So God sends this angel to take a coal from an altar and to come and bring grace and love to Isaiah. Right, what, what does Isaiah get clear and clear on that? That's pointing towards. What do we now, for sure, know what that was pointing towards? It's it's the coming of Jesus. Right. It's it's God, and it's just reinforcing this point. It's like mysterious and beautiful and picturesque, but it's also very accessible. Bottom line being, God wants us to be saved. God wants us to be renewed. God wants us to be transformed. God does all the work. You don't even have to have an understanding of it, right? Like, I do not think Isaiah understood what was happening when a seraphim went and got tongs and took out a coal from an altar and came and touched his lips. But he knew it meant that God was saving him, that God was forgiving him, that God was restoring him, that God was transforming him. You see what I'm saying here, right? That it's God that initiates this, uh, uh, um, God that takes care of everything that needs to be done. Isaiah is just this, like beneficiary, right, of what God does. And so I feel like I could just like stay here a long time and I wanted to get both of these, that God saves and God sends, because it's in the same thing. So I want to I I turn the corner here. But what just feels so, 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 so important about this is just remembering that like God wants us to be made whole. God wants us to have a vision of who God is. God wants us to be forgiven of for our sin. God wants us to live with this sense of wonder and mystery of being caught up in this love story of God. And the last part where it gets the action is really important. You can't disconnect it from the first part, right? That Isaiah being positioned to go out into the world and to participate in the work of God came from this deep revelation of who God is. So will it be exactly like this for you? No, I don't think probably it will be exactly like this. But thematically, will it be like this for you? Where you have an encounter with God, a revelation of God's character, God's majesty, God's wonder, in such a way that you feel like you're undone and put back together again? Yeah, I actually think that is probably right on. I think that's a pretty good picture of how we encounter God in this very transformational kind of a way and get positioned to move from there. Track with me? Amen. It's a a beautiful, powerful story. Beautiful, powerful story. All right, so that's God Saves, and then this last part, God Sends. We're doing this series, the questions God asks, and we get to this pair of questions. Verse 8, the last part that we read. Then Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, I... I think when you, if you're reading this, it can maybe feel like a kind of a sudden turn where you're having this like encounter with God and sin is being atoned for an angelic being is restoring you and forgiving you. And then all of a sudden God's saying, who will go for us? You go, well, wait, where did that come from? But Isaiah's telling the story in such a way you see that Isaiah was aware... Maybe I say, like, for many of us, we don't always connect the individual experience of ourselves with God with kind of the corporate experience with God. But it's really interesting how Isaiah does this. If you'd go back to verse five, yeah, let's let's go back to verse five. I think this is really interesting uh, how Isaiah is simultaneously experiencing this as an individual, but kind of on behalf of the broader people. Um, Isaiah says, "Woe to me! I cried; I'm undone; I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips." Right, so there's the individual part. But then you see what he says there after that? And I live among a people of unclean lips. So some of what we see in the story, even as Isaiah is experiencing salvation in his own individual, personal kind of a way, he's very aware of the fact that his people are in a spiritual mess as well. Right, that there's a sense of spiritual hopelessness a sense of spiritual lostness, a sense of people not knowing who God is, people not living out of the covenant where God says, I am your God and you will be my people. So Isaiah, throughout this whole moment, seems to be aware of the spiritual crisis that his people are facing, not only his own crisis, but there's even kind of this nod to a way that Isaiah is aware of the economic, social, political crisis happening, Um, which that's where it it can almost seem like a throwaway line, line line, but it's not. In verse 1, when it says... Isaiah says this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. This is one of those times we actually know quite a bit historically what's happening then. King Uzziah, that was one of the most prosperous times, one of the prosperous eras for the nation of Israel. It was a 40-year reign where they were doing really well. And when King Uzziah died, there was this huge crisis because now you're you're vulnerable to other people, other armies, other nations, socially, economically vulnerable. Why is all that important? Because... When God asks this question, whom shall I send? Isaiah is interacting with this reality that spiritually people are in trouble, economically people are in trouble, politically people are in trouble, socially people are in trouble. And so when God asks this question, whom shall I send? Whom will, will I go for us? Whom will go for us? This is in the context of realizing that the broader societal structures that Isaiah lives within are in need of a touch from God our need encounter for, from God. And so uh, I think this part is fascinating too. Not only that these are linked, but so Isaiah has this encounter where he knows that he has met God deeply. He's been saved by God. And so now there's this question. And you have to assume that as Isaiah is looking out at the spiritual lostness, at the social, economic lostness. you got to assume that Isaiah is kind of thinking the same thing when he goes to church that most of us think when we go to church. You know, asking these big questions. God, if the world is in such disarray right now, what are you going to do about it, God? There's so much suffering and hurt in the world right now, God. What are you going to do about it, God? Right? These are, these are kind of like the natural human questions we ask, God. Why is so much trouble happening? And what are you going to do about it, God? And so that's what also I think is fascinating about this passage is God flips the question, right? I remember my friend Shane Claiborne used to say that one of, I'm, sorry, I'm remembering this in the moment, but it feels like it, 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 it connects a lot. So one of the things that really transformed him in seeing how God was there is that he heard uh, when he was um, spending a summer with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India, in, in, India one of the uh, nuns told him a story where she said that, it's this fictitious story of somebody kind of ending up in heaven that this guy who you know followed God all his life got to heaven when he got to heaven and got to meet the Lord out anything. What, what what this guy asked the Lord is, he said, There was so much starvation and hunger in the world, and that was so troubling to me. And God, this is my one big question for you. Why did you do nothing? And God looks at the guy and says, That's funny, it's the same question I was gonna ask you. And that's kind of like the flip that happens here: is Isaiah meets God, and now Isaiah is very aware of the spiritual uncleanness, right? The like, the spiritual crisis of the people, aware of the like, pending doom that seems to be coming with the transition of leadership where Uzziah dies and now the people are in disarray. So I kind of assume that Isaiah's question for God is God, what are you going to do? And what's God's question to Isaiah? Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In. The that's where I think when you put these two together that Isaiah kind of got a sense of like what he most needed from God and what we most need from God, that, that these two are not separate from each other, that we need to encounter God in such a way that our lives are transformed. But it's almost like, right, you get a sense that about 10 seconds happen between <laughs> this powerful encounter in church and in the next breath God's saying, all right, now there's work to be done. Right, this same revelation that has happened to you of who I am and of my love and of my goodness and of my transmissional power I'm looking for people who are ready to say here am I send me and if we kind of stay there for a moment try to apply that to us you know uh, I feel like in this conversation whatever you're talking about send me it it very quickly gets to the point of like this is a point that's good to get to you know people are naturally going to say like what does that actually mean for me like how do i get be used by god in such a way and that you know that's where there's all kind of things that go beyond one sermon like there's got to be communal discernment that's part of that there's got to be a growing sense of self-awareness of our own relationship with god of our own emotional health of our own strengths and gifts of our own shadow sides there's got to be a growing sense of who god is a growing sense of the needs of the world so there's a lot of important things that get to the specific ways of answering that but at the broadest level to remember that this is actually what God hopes for us, that we see that God sees the problems of the world, we see that God wants to address those problems in the world, and that God's plan A always is to send us, and that there's something so simple and yet so transformational about listening for that question, whom shall I send? And for us to boldly say, here am I. Send me. I actually think it's interesting. This is in Isaiah's case; he's listening for the question of God to say, which I think is something we should be doing. Jesus goes even a little bit further in this. Uh, this would be kind of the last thing I say on this kind of idea of being sent. But the if this is kind, of, and I would say this is one of the strongest Old Testament passages in the whole the whole Old Testament canon of being sent by God. I would say the strongest sending passage in the New Testament would be Luke chapter ten. That's where Jesus describes God as the Lord of the Harvest, which is a really cool image that in an agrarian society where they were so dependent on a big harvest, Jesus says, this is what God is like. God is like the Lord of this abundant harvest. There is so much food, so much sustenance that is available, but the harvest is plentiful. Some of you remember what Jesus says, but the workers are few. This is what Jesus tells all the disciples, all 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells all 72 disciples, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send you. So Jesus actually goes even a little bit further than Isaiah does, where Isaiah is listening for God to ask, whom shall I send? Jesus takes it even further. Jesus says, you should proactively pray. Dear God, Lord of the harvest, send me. Let me participate in the distribution of this plentiful harvest, trusting that the love and care and grace that you have is meant for your people, but doesn't always get to your people. Lord, I pray that you will send me. So taken together, it is a simple outline to remember, but one that I really think is transformational, to remember that what we learn from Isaiah is that Isaiah really believed that God saves, right? that we're designed, I'd go so far to say, to encounter God in such a way where we get this huge vision of who God is, a revelation of who God is, one that leads to us at first being undone, but then being forgiven, restored, renewed, empowered, And then, when we come out of that, to trust that this is actually how God works in the world, God sends, and that the same God who says to Isaiah, whom shall I send, whom will go for us, that same God, here and now, is saying, whom shall I send, whom shall go for us? And those final words from Isaiah, all right, that's, that's, may that be our prayer, when Isaiah hears God ask, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says two things. Here am I. Send me. Amen? Let us pray and dwell on this for a moment together. Dear dear God, Triune God, God Father, God Jesus, God Holy Spirit, the God who, when angelic beings look at you, can do nothing but... uh, worship, to to uh, be almost staggered by the beauty and wonder of who you are. Think of the words of Peter. I think this is in 1 Peter 1, when it says, The angels look at the good news of the gospel and gaze at it all day, all night. It feels very similar to the way you describe this here, or that Isaiah describes this here, of kind of peeking into the heavenly and seeing all the beings who have clear sight just being in this worshipful position, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So God, I just would ask that even us, I mean, Isaiah's in the temple when that happened. He probably was in the temple dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred times before that, but on this particular day, Isaiah's in the temple, and he gets hold of a vision from you, a revelation from you, where he just sees you in a way he had never seen you before where your majesty, your wonder, your power, your goodness, your grace, your love just became alive, became vivid, took over his whole being. I'm trying to kind of walk that balance where we're not assuming it has to unfold exactly as it did for Isaiah, but where we also trust that it points to something that, in our own ways. And I feel like there are, I feel like there's different places on the scale. I feel like sometimes we have this just in a Small way, we just get a little sense, like yeah, God really is just so good, so otherly, in all the best and most powerful ways, and that's that. That leads to me living differently. Sometimes I think we get like kind of more substantial revelations of that. Where certainly we can have this in our own walk with you on a walk or listening to music, reading scripture. I do think in moments like this too, where we're all gathered together. Um, there is something about that. It's not, it's, 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 it creates space. It's, it almost seems like it creates movement where we can kind of hear that voice of you that's always talking. We can hear it a little more clearly. We can see that which has always been true, but it's revealed to us in a little bit of a different way. And then sometimes we just have those, like, life-altering revelations of who you are. So wherever it might be on the size of the scale, but I just pray here, even now, for those of us who in whatever way we're participating in this right now, open the eyes of our heart. Let our spirit see that what you're calling us to is not to be just a little bit more well-behaved, not to just check the boxes What you want is us to have a revelation of who you are. The trust that seeing you more clearly really changes everything for us. I love that kind of full circle process that Isaiah goes through of seeing you, being undone, having all of his insecurities come to the surface. Can I be loved by a God like this? And can I come into the presence of a God like this? Am I smart enough? Am I spiritual enough? All the things that come with being undone, all the insecurities that come to the surface for us. And then you met him in that moment. You sent an angel to bring something from this sacrificial altar that touched and healed and forgave and restored and so god i I just pause there for a moment as we're praying here and responding in prayer responding in worship to reading your your text together i don't know can can you meet us in that kind of liminal place right now where even as we're prayerfully opening ourselves to you in a way that fits for each person, can we, can we see you coming towards us? For Isaiah was an angel. In the New Testament times, it's you coming in the person of Jesus. But whatever way we hear it and sense it and see it, can we experience you moving towards us right now in love based on what you've done for us and for all of humanity and applying it to us in the same way that the seraphim put the coals on his lips. And then, God, may we never divorce or detach that from the work of participating with you in the world. These aren't separate things. These aren't separate kind of churches. These aren't separate kind of expressions of Christianity. They're meant to be a single, united reality where we experience you deeply. And then in the aftermath of that newness, that new creation-ness, that forgiveness, that love, that sense of wonder that comes from being called God's own, where we then hear the faint voice and yet such clear voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will go for us, the triune God? Who will go for us, the people? Who will say, Yes, God, here I am. God, I do hope every person in here says, here I am, send me. But I hope we make all the stops on the way to to allowing ourselves to be swept up into a revelation of you, to allow ourselves to become undone by the wonder and the majesty of a God who calls us God's own. May we experience that forgiveness, that newness. May we know the intimacy, not just of being sent out with a set of instructions, but sent out with a God who speaks to us, who guides us, who nurtures us, who, like the good shepherd, goes before us. So God, these last few moments are precious for us. We get to collectively, corporately, communally respond to you in worship. We get to listen to you together. Thinking of John 10, each of your sheep, individually we know your voice, but as a as a collective we hear your voice. The sheep, the group, know the voice of the shepherd. So may we all lock in right now and listen for the voice of the shepherd. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we rise together however you want to best receive the benediction? I think both parts of Isaiah's story are so important for us to remember. So yes, we are sent and we'll get there, but let us first remember that as the song said, I am yours. God calls you to God's self. That is what is true of you. God calls you to God's self. God lets you see God for who God is, and who you are within that. So remember, you are God's. God is calling you to God's self, and then God sends. So let us go and listen for this question, because this question doesn't ever go away. The God of the universe, the Triune God, asks, "Who shall we send? Who shall go for us?" course, I hope we'll all say, here am I, send me. But let's make this a benediction. Let us listen together for the voice of the God who says, whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.